0: YBC. If you'll turn with me to uh, Psalm 147, I'll be reading verses 1 through 5. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem, he gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives them all their names. Great is our God and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Let's pray. Lord, as I think about your word and the fact that you not only created every star, but you you gave them all names, I think about the verse that says that even the hairs on my head are numbered. And whether small or large, you are sovereign over all things and in control over all things. And I'm thankful to have a God that's in control, even when things in my life feel like they're not. And I, just, I thank you that you're intimately involved in all the details of our lives and that you love us so much. And I just pray that you would bless today's teaching and that it would reach the people that need to hear it today. And we pray this in your name. Amen.
1: Thank you, Chris. Good morning, church family. Um, you can definitely tell when it's uh, the rhythm in our annual calendar has changed because um, well, I went hiking this past Wednesday uh, up Storm King and uh, it was a zoo on the trail, uh, to put it mildly. And I was like, what in the world? Where's everybody coming from? I'm like, oh, that's right, school's out. And everybody's on vacation, and that is no different than today, apparently as well. So, uh, but I'm so I was eager to gather with you this morning, and uh, I'm excited to be here because one of the kind of built-in benefits of gathering weekly together is that we have the opportunity to encourage one one another, to strengthen one another, to worship together, to pray with one another, to hear from God's word together. And uh, you'll understand this common, non- common denominator, right? Together, together, together. Even as Dave uh, read to us out of Revelation 21, one day we'll be spending eternity together, whether you like it or not. So uh, at least thankfully in eternity, we're going to like it because our hearts will be officially fully and completely transformed and renewed. And so I look forward to that day with you. You might recall that last week I uh, began a new series, right? We completed our previous series through the spiritual disciplines. We called it Spiritual uh, Fitness, and uh, we completed that not because we exhaustively went through every spiritual discipline under the sun or anything, but, uh, but we went through a number of key practices or habits that we feel are beneficial, not just beneficial, but really crucial or foundational to your spiritual health. And then last week we began a new series called The Attributes of God. Now you might recall if you were with us last week, and if you weren't, this will just be kind of a, a quick reminder, uh, the, really the, the importance of this undertaking is highlighted by A.W. Tozer who says this, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And the fact is, ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3, the human race has been defining and redefining. They've been, uh, we've been imagining and reimagining what God is like. And unfortunately, many of the versions of what people call God, quote-unquote, are grossly inadequate, uh, more often than not unbiblical, and therefore from the pit of hell. And so it's important that we get it right when it comes to God, specifically when it comes to who God really is. Because if we don't get it right, if we, if we adopt some perverted notion or idea about God, then as Tozer says elsewhere, it says, it will rot the religion in which they appear. And so therefore, the heaviest obligation of the Christian church today is to purify and really to elevate their the concept of God until it is once again more worthy of of him. Now, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page here because even though I might throw out terms, uh, that does not mean that what I'm thinking and what you're thinking are always the same thing. And so, when I define really what, when we talk about the attributes of God, it's important that we define what an attribute actually is. Now, if you were to Google… An attribute, uh, you know, which is very convenient, you could type in definition of attribute and many things would come up or maybe old school people would open up an actual Webster dictionary and, and you look up a definition there. And really the general sense or definition of an attribute is this, an attribute is a quality or a feature that is characteristic of something or someone, we're talking about a quality or a feature that is characteristic of something or someone, and in the general sense, a qu- uh, uh, in a general sense, a quality about somebody else can either be self-prescribed, right, or it can also be ascribed by another person. In fact, oftentimes when we think about attributes that are true of us, though they may be somewhat subjective in nature, oftentimes when we think about one another, certain attributes about one another are often ascribed by another person. This is why Scripture tells us to not to think about ourselves more highly than we ought to think because we usually think pretty well of ourselves, right? We think we're kind of a big deal, and, uh, and then Scripture, of course, humbles us necessarily. And then sometimes we're shocked when others don't think about us the way we think about us. So we have certain attributes that, make, that are true of us, and they're often ascribed by other people. But when we're talking about the attributes of God, it's a little different. Because only God can actually... Uh, Reveal to us or disclose to us what is true about himself. In other words, though our attributes as human beings are oftentimes ascribed about us by another person, God actually self describes himself. He self-prescribes himself in the attributes. In other words, only the attributes that we can understand from Scripture and and confidently identify from Scripture are everything that God has previously disclosed about himself. And so what we are doing here through this series that will take us all the way up till Christmas, uh, we are really embarking on a journey that will be both exhilarating and, I also believe, paradigm shifting for all of us. Because remember, as we established last week, right? No matter what mental image you have of God, no matter how well you think you know Him, we're all off. We have all fallen short to some degree. And the reason for this is that we've fallen short, or that we're off in our mental image of God, is because God is incomprehensible. We discussed that briefly last week. God is incomprehensible. You know, on one hand, when we think that God is incomprehensible, that is actually clarifying to us because it helps us understand who He is. It speaks to His unsearchableness, right? It points to His glorious, inexhaustible nature. I love what Paul says in Romans chapter 11 When he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable or incomprehensible are his ways. So on one hand, this kind of clarifies for us, well, when we ask the question, who is God? Well, Paul gives us a definition here. He's incomprehensible. He's unsearchable. And at the same time, that makes it somewhat confusing it's confusing because we as finite creatures struggle to comprehend things that cannot be measured. After all, everything we know about our world and everything we know about our universe is bound by certain limitations. And then I mean, when we talk about God's incomprehensible nature, we immediately want to ask a question like, well, how incomprehensible is he? right or or what are the limitations of god's incomprehensibleness is that even a word i don't know but that's just it god has no limitations his nature and his ways cannot be measured and so when we speak to god's incomprehensibility we are grasping at a reality that can that we can only accept but not a reality that we can actually understand. Or to put it bluntly, we are seeking to comprehend the incomprehensible. By the way, if you feel a little confused right now um, or are experiencing some form or degree of mind cramps, all is normal, all is well. You should be, because we are grappling with attributes of God that are so foreign to us, but they're very true of God. And this brings us to our first attribute that we're going to grapple with this morning. This morning, we're going to grapple with God's infinitude. We're going to grapple that with the idea that God is infinite. Now, I use grapple on purpose, Because the idea of infinity, much like incomprehensibility, is a concept that blows our minds because it is a concept so foreign to our existence and everything we understand about life. I mean, even trying to conceive of infinity, right, specifically God's infinitude, seems almost self-contradictory because we're trying to grasp at the ungraspable. We're trying to, to reach what cannot be reached. I appreciate what uh, Charles Spurgeon said a long time ago. He says, if we could understand God, he would not be God. For it is a part of the nature of God that we should be infinitely greater than any other created mind. But the fact is, God has revealed this attribute about himself, so here we go. What does it mean that God is infinite? What does it mean? What are the? What does it mean that God is infinite? There's an incredible theologian in this past century that has uh, offered us a great definition. Um, he said something to the likes of "to infinity and beyond." <laughs> Buzz Lightyear, man. Buzz Lightyear does not understand infinity, because if you could go beyond infinity, it would not be infinity. So even though it's a cute toy story and and show and kids love it, guess what? Buzz doesn't understand infinity, but neither do we. Matthew Barrett actually offers a helpful description of what God's infinity is like, And and he says this, It means that God is unbounded, unlimited, and unrestricted. Tozer puts it like this in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says, God knows no limits, no bounds, and no end. What God is, He is without boundaries. All that God is, He is without bounds or limits. As I mentioned, we're we're going to be grappling with this concept of infinity, and it's impossible to really understand or really kind of hold on to as concretely as we want to about other things that we know in life. But C.S. Lewis actually offers an illustration, I think, that can be helpful for us, not because it alleviates everything, but there is my artwork. It's a white sheet of paper with a black Sharpie line. The way C.S. Lewis describes God's infinitude is basically that black line represents all of time. Since time first began and God spoke it into existence till our time ends, that's time. And guess what? God in every direction, extending in all directions around that line, which represents time, is God. So God is both in time as well as outside of time. It's not something that's, you know, he goes kind of back and forth. It's the fact that he consumes time, but he's not bound by time. You can take the picture off, Bethany thinks. As amazing as the artwork is. The question I think that kind of begs or follows from what does it mean that God is infinite in his nature is, what are the implications of God's infinite nature? What are the implications that God is infinite, infinity? Well, one implication is this. God's infinite nature means that God is perfect. If God were almost something, he would cease to be perfect and therefore not infinite. For example, if God were ninety-nine percent knowledgeable about everything in the universe, and, the, and that he knew every more than any other being or any other entity ever known in the universe, but it was only ninety-nine percent, he would still cease to be perfect. Because, and the reason for that is because God is inherently God is infinite, and therefore, by default, he must be the only perfect being. A philosopher, Catherine Rogers, says, says it this way, any perfection attributed to God must be attributed in an unlimited degree. So one implication of God's nature is that, God's, that God is perfect, and that leads us to our second point. God's infinite nature distinguishes him from every other person, place, or, thing in the universe. Why? Because there can only be one perfect being. To be perfect means that there cannot be any other comparison in nature. And this is because God is infinitely, he's an inherently infinite and everything else must be, was created by God. For example, God has no beginning and he also has no end, but everything else in creation, everything we know to be in existence has a beginning and apart from the human soul has an end. Remember one of the foundational rules we established last week, right? God is not like you. As much as we like to have a mental image of God like us, and He's just kind of the superhuman version of us, God is not like you. Yes, Genesis tells us that we were created in the image of God, but that does not mean we were created in the exact image of God. He is not like us, He is the only perfect being because He is infinite. A third implication of God's infinite nature is this, is that He cannot be measured. You know, in our lives, we are constantly uh, referring, we, we refer to life and we understand life through multiple systems of measurement, right? Money is a form of measurement. Weight, size, volume, distance, speed, all are forms of measurement. It's how we understand how life works. Even the laws of thermodynamics are a measurement. that helps us understand how God's created order works. But the fact that we can apply some form of measurement to any specific object or person or natural law means that it is limited in some way or form. For example, even if we compute or try to wrap our minds around that there are stars and there are uh, there's creation that are millions of light years away, right? You can't even actually, our minds can't even fathom what that means. That there are stars and planets and created things millions of light years away, yet we are still measuring them, right? They're still limited or bound because we measure them just in the form of light years. And yet, God cannot be measured. I think even more profound, though I think those points are profound in and of themselves, but probably a little bit more personal to us, is that God's infinite nature means that everything that flows out of him is also infinite. What I mean by that is this, all of God's attributes are limitless. All of God's attributes are infinite. For example, when we speak to God's mercy, God's mercy is infinitely merciful. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Or think about God's love, right? God's love is infinitely loving. Listen to the Psalms, Psalm 103, verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. In fact, even in, when God disciplines His children, right? He disciplines those whom He loves, Scripture tells us. But even in His discipline, His discipline is Always out of love. That is an important understanding. That is an important mental image that we need to never part ways from because oftentimes we think, oh, I'm under God's discipline or I'm under God's wrath or something, and we think that that is absence of love. But guess what, brothers and sisters? God cannot be anything but infinite love for us, even in his discipline of us. Proverbs 3 says My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. Think about that. Even in his discipline of us, God continues to delight in you. That never stops. Or think about God's infinite power, Right? God is power, his power is infinitely powerful. Paul says in Ephesians 1, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, verse 18, he says, he goes on to say, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? God's knowledge is infinitely knowledgeable. God's wisdom is infinitely wise. We read this verse again, but I'm going to show it to you again because this is a, probably a verse we ought to memorize. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable or incomprehensible are his ways. We think about the kindness of God. God's kindness is infinitely kind. In fact, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, Paul says. Think about the patience of God. God. God's patience is infinitely patient. You know, we oftentimes might even think to ourselves or say to ourselves or say to somebody else, I'm reaching the end of my rope, right? You've exhausted my patience. Don't push it. My mercy has limits, right? Maybe you have your own version or saying that you think or actually say out loud, Especially parents to the kids. The fact is, though, God has no limitations. He doesn't grow impatient, He doesn't snap like we can oftentimes do, He doesn't emotionally react like we can. God is infinitely patient. In fact, sometimes, and Dave even mentioned this, right, in Revelation 21, oh, we look for the day in which all wrongs are made right. We anticipate and long for the day in which sin is eradicated once and for all, right? We long for a world and a reality in which, guess what? Oh, no more pain, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more cancer, no more sickness, no more death, no more all the things that we hate and everything that we love, right? Come quickly, Lord Jesus, is our cry, right? And yet, although that is true and biblical, and that should be our cry, we also see in 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise of redemption, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The point is this. When it comes to God's infinitude or the, the, the implications of His infinite nature, God always acts in perfect concert with His infinite nature. This means, for example, and if we were to kind of give other, I think it's important to give other examples that kind of describe what we're talking about here, right? For example, when we think about that God is infinite, we also need to therefore conclude that when God created everything and spoke it into existence, that was actually easy for him. Did that ever cross your mind when you think like read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, right? And you're like, God created everything. He spoke into existence. Yes, God is all powerful, but it must have like been like, wow, that was like kind of like maximizing or maxing out his abilities or something, right? No, it was easy for God. All of creation spoken into existence was not difficult for him at all. And then we see that God rests on the seventh day and we go, oh, that's because he was tired, right? Oh man, I can't imagine creating the universe and the stars that are millions of light years away. No, he wasn't tired because he's limitless. God doesn't get tired because he's infinite. It's interesting, we... um, just, I kind of shared with this before, but we were going through kind of another Sabbath um, course here, a, a group, handful of us uh, that are in here this morning. And uh, we were going through a four-week thing on Sabbath. And uh, one of the points that was highlighted, that I was reminded of, that it kind of just sunk a little deeper in my own understanding was this, that when God rested on the seventh day, of course it wasn't because he was tired, but he was establishing a supernatural rhythm for all human beings to follow. Think about it. The day, the 24-hour day, has a natural connection, right? It's the spin of the earth. The week, however, does not. The month does because it's all attached to the lunar cycle, right? The moon going around the earth, right? Even our year is attached to the solar cycle where we're going all around the, the, the sun. But the week has no natural cycle or rhythm to it because it is supernatural it is a rhythm established by god himself for us to follow the sabbath man was not made for the sabbath the sabbath was made for man i kind of wonder you know because we talked about sabbath right in our spiritual fitness how you doing with that Is there a day in your week that is devoted, that is unique, that is set apart so that you might stop and rest and delight and worship God? The fact is, everything God is and everything God does is infinite. God to be God, Tozer says, must be infinite in all that he is. He must have no bound or limit, no stopping, no no stopping place, no point beyond which he he can't go. When you think of God or anything about God, you'll have to think infinitely about God. Think about that. You'll have to think infinitely about God. So let's make it very personal to us then. What are the implications of God's infinite nature in your life? What implications does God's infinite nature have toward you? There's a number of things, and this is no, by no means exhaustive, but there are four things I want to highlight for us. First of all, and I think I actually just don't have any more points on this, so we'll just leave it like that. First of all, it calms our desperation to holding on to this life in anticipation for the next. Let me just say that again. One of the implications of God's infinite nature for you and for me is that it has the ability to calm our desperation in holding on to this life in anticipation for the next says this: For those outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, time is a devouring beast. You ever heard of a midlife crisis before? Quarter life crisis? Just a crisis in general? Oftentimes, our crisis, and classically or traditionally known as the midlife crisis, those things come about because we finally come to this point or this epiphany in our lives where we go, life is not turning out the way I had hoped. Life is not turning out the way I had planned. Life is not turning out the way I wanted it to. Oh, shoot, I'm running out of time. You start reflecting back on life, and and then you start looking ahead going, I'm, I'm more dead than I am alive. And we start getting kind of restless in our spirit and maybe restless in our soul and going, oh no, and we're starting to cling on. I don't have much time, let alone energy or even physical capacity to do anything about this. And so people make all kinds of rash decisions in these midlife crises, right? Many marriages dissolve in these midlife crises because all of a sudden, wait, this partner of mine is not making me happy, and I need to pursue what makes me happy because I only have so much time left or i need to like get a different job or i need to go pursue this or i need to sell that i need to launch out here i need to complete this bucket list because i got to get happy and time is running out brothers and sisters you are in christ the spirit of the living god indwells you and what that means is that you have the eternity of God coursing through your veins. Yes, we will die in this life, but that is not the end. It is only the beginning. Time is a devouring beast for those who are not in Christ, but for sons and daughters of the king, time crouches and purrs and licks their hands, Tozer says. We're not afraid. We're not restless. We're not frantic. We rest in the fact that because we are in Christ, we are a new creation. The old is past. The new has come. And yes, our body will decay. Our body will fall apart. And that is only bringing us one step closer to an eternal, incorruptible body that awaits us in the presence of Jesus Christ forever. The fact that God is infinite means that we have infinity in store for us. We, because of Christ, have his infinite nature. I think another point or implication of God's infinite nature as it applies to our lives is this. God's immeasurable power can be both knowable and experienceable. God's infinite power can be both knowable but also experienceable. Listen to what Paul again says in Ephesians chapter 1. You see, here in this chapter, Paul prays that the believer's heart would be enlightened so that they might know. Again, so Paul's actually praying on behalf of these brothers and sisters in the church of Ephesus. He's like, I want you to know, not just know about, but to know experientially the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. You see, see, Paul says that a believer cannot not just know of God's infinite power, but can also experience a life defined by God's infinite power in their lives. How? Because of the empty tomb. That's Paul's justification. Because God, the Father, raised Jesus Christ, his son, from the dead, therefore that same power that, was, that, that allowed Jesus to be resurrected from the dead is not just available to us, but is given to us. Resurrection power. The same infinite power of the almighty God that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us who believe. Could there be any other greater power? That's a rhetorical question, no. You know, some of us in here, we may struggle to, to, to understand God's willingness to act on our behalf, right? We may ask questions like, I know God can, but will he in my life? Some of us may struggle with understanding God's ability to act on our behalf. How, how in the world can God do this? How will he come through? But here's the deal. Regardless of our doubt or our struggle, we are invited to rest in and not depart from this biblical truth that God is eager to reveal his unlimited power in you and through you. That you might experience firsthand his unlimited greatness in your life. That's what Paul was praying in Ephesians chapter one. So if you're asking this question, is there hope for my marriage? The answer is an emphatic yes. If you're asking this question, will I ever be healed? The answer is an emphatic yes. If you're asking this question, how will I ever afford my needs, this house, this car, whatever it may be? The answer is a but God, yes. If you're asking the question, will my child be okay? The answer is an emphatic yes. If you're wondering how can I ever move forward after losing my spouse? It's an emphatic but God. His power is not only available to you, but God seeks to work actively through you to manifest His glory in you. Sometimes, however, the greatest manifestation of God's power is not that He takes our hardship away, but that He sustains you by His grace in your struggle with joy. You see, God already promises, Jesus promises, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. Be of good courage. I have overcome the world. So sometimes the the sustaining power of God's grace in our lives is the most visible evangelistic expression of God's power to a, a lost and hopeless world. I think a third implication that I want to highlight for us is this. You cannot out sin God's mercy because God's mercy is without limit. You cannot out sin God's mercy because God's mercy is without limit. I love what Paul says in Romans five twenty when he says where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Bless you. No matter how much sin may abound in your life, here's the deal, brothers and sisters, no matter how much sin you may be struggling in, in right now, here's the deal. It still has its limit. But God's mercy does not. His mercy is limitless. Against our deep creature sickness, Tozer says, stands God's infinite ability to cure. You know, some of us in here right now perhaps continue to sit under the weight and under the, the weight of guilt because we cannot fathom that God would forgive me again and again and again and again. But brothers and sisters, let me remind you of this. Listen to what he says in Romans 8. There is no Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, can I just say this as a way of invitation and as a way of declaration over your life? If you are in Christ, you are free. You are innocent. In fact, God declares His He declares an attribute over you, saying, "You are a saint." Isn't that crazy? Because we know ourselves, and he knows us better than we know ourselves. And we're like, how in the world could God declare me a saint? But he says, you are brothers and sisters of God, sons and daughters of the king, saints, declared righteous and innocent and free. Not because of your doing, but because of what he, Jesus, has accomplished on the cross. As a way of kind of part two of that point, Though God's mercy is limitless, overriding no, matter, no amount of sin that you have conjured up in your life. It does remind me once again, though, the way in which we eradicate or the way in which sin is eradicated from our lives is not by trying harder. Harder. It's not by more self-determination. It's not by putting safeguards or accountability partners or even our religious activity. That is not the means by which sin is eradicated from our heart. No. Sin and the temptation to sin is overcome when you know the real God. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.1. He says, since we have these promises, beloved... Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This, that phrase, the fear of God, sometimes gets uh, grossly mistranslated, right? It, get, it gets misunderstood and we, and we have all kinds of weird ideas about the fear of God, but the fear of God in its most simple but profound sense is this. It's just knowing and understanding God as He really is. You remember remember that that vision that Isaiah had in Isaiah chapter six, right? God calls, he puts a a calling on Isaiah's life and says, I've chosen you. I've set you apart to be a mouthpiece on behalf of me to my people. And he gives a vision for uh, for Isaiah to experience. And, And what is Isaiah's response when he gets a vision of heaven and God Almighty? He trembles and he falls flat on his face. And he says, it's all over. I am undone. I am doomed. I am a sinful man. You see, Isaiah got a picture, a greater understanding of who God is as he really is. And that in turn uncovered all the ugliness in his own heart. But it's also the means by which the sin is eradicated from our lives. But just remember this, brothers and sisters, as much as sin abounds in your life, God's mercy is limitless. Never forget that. My fourth and final point or application is this. God's infinite nature means that there is none greater to be worshiped but God alone. Because God is infinite in nature, there is none worthy to be worshipped in God alone. David already read from Revelation chapter 5, but uh, I'll just kind of give you a, a quick summary of Revelation chapter 5. John the Apostle is again, having this download, divine download, and writing down what he sees, and, and uh, though we don't, he doesn't have language necessarily to describe what he sees, and so he's putting it in words, and it seems cryptic and difficult to understand, but some things are crystal clear. And what he sees, he sees a scroll, and he sees these angelic beings, and he sees the elders in heaven. And we see that ultimately, like, who is worthy to undo this scroll that is sealed? And nobody in heaven is worthy. Nobody until the Lamb, the Lion of Judah. Only one is worthy, and his name is Jesus Christ. And we see that all of heaven gives worship and praise, the fact that somebody is worthy. They say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. And then John says this, then I looked, And I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders of the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature, John says, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. You notice something in Revelation chapter 5. There's no I, me, We it is all about you are worthy. It's all about Jesus. He is the one that is worthy of our praise. Remember what I from last week, J.I. Packer in his book Knowing God, he says that the end of growing in our knowledge about God is that we would be led to the worship of God. That's this is what it's all about that we might know the real God. And as a result, that we would fall on our knees and worship because Paul tells us in Philippians 2, one day every knee will bow. One day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's my desire, here's my hope, here's my prayer for us that we would not wait until that day. That we would not wait until Jesus comes and we respond accordingly, but instead that when Jesus comes, he finds his people already worshiping, already about his business, already evangelizing a lost and hopeless world, already worshiping the one who is worthy of our praise. May that be true of each of us.